Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day two. Today we will be reading book one, chapters seven through ten in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we will be covering today. So in these chapters, in chapters 7 through 10, we are going to move from St. Augustine's infancy to boyhood, and where he gives us a sort of greater reflection on the relationships that he has at this point in his life with his family, with his teachers, with his friends. In them, it raises the question of sin in a couple different ways. So he talks about sin in children, which um, brings up the question of original sin. Uh, And he begins to address the roots of his disobedience and vice in his life that he sees beginning to play out in his boyhood. So we're going to take a look at all of that. So let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I may always be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 7. Hear, O God, alas for man's sin, thus speaks man, and you have mercy on him, for you made him, though you did not make the sin that is in him. Who calls to mind the sins of my infancy? For in your sight none are pure from sin, not even the infant who has lived but a day on earth. Who calls this to mind? Does not each and every little infant in whom I see those things that I do not remember about myself? What then was my sin? Was it the fact that I nursed at the breast and cried? Indeed, if I acted in this demanding way today for food that is appropriate for a man of my age, then would I be justly laughed at and reprimanded? For when we have grown mature, we root up and cast away these kinds of habits. Now no man who prunes a bush intentionally throws away what is good, or was it something good, if only for a short while, for me to cry out for things that, if they were given to me, would have caused me harm? Was it something good to bitterly resent the fact that free people, indeed my own elders, nay, the very authors of my birth, did not serve me? Was it indeed good to resent the fact that many others, wiser than I, did not obey my whims? And what about striking out and hurting others because my commands were not obeyed, despite the fact that had they been obeyed, they would have been harmful? The weakness of infant limbs, not the child's will, makes for its innocence." I myself have seen and known even an envious baby, unable to speak, yet pale and bitter at the sight of his foster brother. 
Who has not experienced such things? Mothers and nurses tell you that they dispel such bad temper by means of remedies that they know of, though they are unknown to me. And is an infant likewise innocent when, the fountains of milk flowing in rich abundance, he does not allow someone else to share, even when another child is in the greatest of need and depends on this milk for his very life? We are gentle with all this, not because such deeds are not evil or are only slightly wicked, but rather because they will disappear with the passing of years. For although they are tolerated when the child is young, the same dispositions are utterly intolerable when found in those who have more years under their belt. You then, O Lord my God, who gave life to my infancy, thereby giving senses, as we see, to the body that you gave, constructing its limbs, giving it fitting proportions, and for the sake of its own general good and safety, implanting within it all the vital functions that give it life. You command me to praise you for all these things, to confess to you and sing to your name, O Most High. For you are God, almighty and good, it would be so even if this had been all that you had done, something that you alone could do, you whose unity is the pattern of all things, you who make all things fair from your own fairness, you who order all things by your law. This age which, O Lord, I cannot remember in which I take on the word of others and likewise speculate about on the basis of other infants that I have personally encountered, even if I am true in my speculations, I am pained to think that I should number it among the years that I live in this world, for no less than that time spent in my mother's womb is it hidden from me in the shadows of forgetfulness." However, if I was fashioned in iniquity and conceived in sin in my mother's womb, where then I beseech you, O my God, where, Lord, or when was I your servant free from guilt? But let us pass over that period, for what more can I say of such an age whose slightest echoes are hidden from me? Chapter 8 Thus, passing on from my infancy, I came to boyhood, or rather, it came upon me, displacing my infancy. Nor did that depart, for where did it go? But nonetheless, it no longer existed. For no longer was I a speechless infant, but now was a boy expressing himself in words. This I remember, and since that time I have observed how I learned to speak. My elders did not use any kind of set method to teach me words, and soon thereafter other learning. Rather, I myself, longing to express my thoughts through cries and broken syllables, along with various movements of my limbs, practiced these sounds in my memory, so that by these means I might have my will fulfilled, though I was yet unable to express everything that I willed, or even to whom I was addressing my will, doing all this through the understanding that you, my God, have given me. When they would name anything, turning toward it when they would speak, I saw and remembered that they used a given name for what they would point out. The fact that they were referring to this given thing and to no other was clear from their bodily motion, which is, as it were, the natural language of all nations, expressed by faces, the gaze of the eyes, gestures of one's limbs, and the various tones that the voice can take on, indicating what kind of reaction is on one's mind as it pursues, possesses, rejects, or shuns things. Thus, by constantly hearing words as they occurred in various sentences, I gradually came to understand what they referred to, and having progressively trained my mouth to express these verbal signs, I thus put my will into words. In this way, I entered into discourse with those around me using the signs that express what we are willing, thereby launching out deeper into the stormy seas of the intercourse of human life, though still depending upon parental authority and the cues given to me by my elders. Chapter 9. 
Oh God, my God, what miseries and mockeries did I now experience when I was told to obey my teachers, as is proper to a boy, so that I might find prosperity in this world and excel in the cultivated use of my tongue, which may thereby be exercised in the service of seeking human praise in the pursuit of deceitful riches. Next I was put into school so that I might receive instruction and learning, whose usefulness I, poor wretch that I was, did not understand. But nonetheless, if I was idle in my learning, I was beaten, as was judged right by our forefathers. And many others, passing through the same course before us, fashioned for us toilsome paths upon which we were compelled to trod, multiplying the toil and grief loaded upon the shoulders of the sons of Adam. But, Lord, we found that men called upon you and learned from them to think of you, to the degree that we could according to our powers at that time, as some great one who, though hidden from our senses, could hear us and come to our aid. And thus I began as a boy to pray to you, my aid and refuge, breaking the bonds of my tongue in order to call upon you, beseeching you, weakly though, with no small amount of earnestness, that I might not be beaten at school. And when you did not heed me, not thereby giving me over to folly, my elders, indeed my very parents, who wished no ill upon me, mocked these stripes on my back, which at the time were so great and grievous and evil to me. Is there, Lord, anyone who has so great a soul, clinging to you with such intense affection, though a kind of foolishness will also lead one to do this? Is there anyone who, from clinging devoutly to you, is imbued with so great a spirit that he can think as lightly of racks, hooks, and other torments, against which through all lands men call upon you with extreme dread, mocking those by whom they are feared most bitterly, as our parents mocked the torments we suffered in boyhood from our masters? For we had no less fear of the torments that afflicted us, nor did we pray to you any less, seeking some escape from them. And nonetheless we sinned by writing or reading or studying less than was demanded of us. For we did not wish, O Lord, to exercise to the degree that we could at our age the memory or capacity that you gave us. Rather, our sole delight was found in play, and for this we were punished by those who even themselves were doing just the same. However, the idleness of older people is called busyness, while that of boys, though in the end really the same, is punished by the same elders. And neither boys nor men commiserate in this. For will anybody who can judge matters soundly approve of me being beaten as a boy because, by playing ball, I did not make sufficient progress in my studies, which I was to learn only in order that I might, as a man, play games that are more unbecoming? And in what way was the man who beat me different? He who, when overcome in some trivial debate with his fellow tutor, was more embittered and jealous than I was when beaten at ball by one of my playmates. Chapter 10 And yet I sinned in what I did, O Lord God, the creator and order of all things in nature. O you who are not the creator of sin, but rather only bring order out of it. O Lord my God, I sinned in transgressing the commands of parents and those of my masters. For whatever their motive might have been in having me learn these things, nonetheless such learning could have been put to good use later on. For I did not disobey because there was some better thing for me to choose, but rather disobeyed out of love of play, loving the pride of victory in my contests, and to have my ears tickled with lying fables, so that they may itch all the more. And my eyes were led with increasing curiosity toward the shows and games of my elders. Yet those who present these shows are held in such esteem that nearly everybody wishes the same for their children, and nonetheless are all too willing that they should be beaten if those very games detain them from their studies that would lead their children to be able to take part in them. 
Look mercifully, O Lord, on these things, and deliver us who now call upon you. Likewise, deliver those who do not as yet call upon you, so that they may call upon you and receive deliverance from you. Okay, here we are. You've made it through one day. Just a few more to go. Let's keep rolling. (laughs) I'll stop making those jokes soon, but, you know, I think they're funny. So, and if it amuses me, well... That's what matters, right? <laughs> uh, so in, in the second chunk of, of chapters, chapters 7 through 10 in, in the first book as we're listening or reading them, one of the things that comes up now, and well, we know that the Confessions is a story of St. Augustine's conversion. So of course, we're going to talk about sin and vice and brokenness that existed in, in ways still exists in St. Augustine's life as, he write, as he's writing it, but particularly in his reflections. And one of the things that comes up is now because he's talking about his infancy or he was in the first six chapters and now his boyhood and his early years at school, this question of sin that's present in children or the idea of original sin. So I think it's worth addressing that at the outset because we know that original sin exists, but there's often questions like, well, can children sin? Are children guilty of of this sort of thing? And Augustine has a bit to say on it, so we should say a bit on it too. So I don't know. Thoughts, Father Gregory? Yeah. Maybe it's helpful just to describe how St. Augustine understands original sin, which is complicated and which is controverted. So people say different things about it. But as is the typical Dominican custom, we usually go to the best interpreter of St. Augustine, which is St. Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> as a way to shed some light on what has gone on previously in the church's intellectual tradition or in the church's tradition more broadly. And basically, you know, like you have this idea that we were created good or we were created well. So God made us with everything that we needed for the life of nature, but also for the life of grace, which is to say, you know, like supernature. So you can think about our human lives as, as somewhat complex insofar as, you know, there's intellectual or spiritual dimensions and then there's sub-intellectual or kind of bodily dimensions, each of which has its own tendency or its own inclinations. So on the lower end of things, you know, we want food and drink, you know, like family life, procreation, education of children. On the higher end of things, you know, we want to know the truth about God and we want to live peaceably in society and other things like that. Now, all of these desires are going on at the same time. And so in our original state, we would have had grace and even further privileges, which would have helped us to sort out among those desires and to establish a kind of rectitude so that we would always have pursued these different goods in a way that was appropriate to those goods and in conversation with the other goods that uh, that we found kind of under our noses. Uh, but when we sin, our original sin, it casts out the life of grace and it introduces a kind of disorder into our lives. So one way of describing it is that we are left to ourselves. It's not that original sin changes our nature or makes us essentially evil, but in being deprived of the grace and those other privileges which came in our original state, now being left to ourselves, we find it very difficult to navigate life. And I think that what you see in children is those desires are coming to fuller and fuller expression with each passing year. And so you see the kind of like kindling of sin, as it were. You see uh, the antecedents of sin that are lining up when the child is small, when the child is young. But because reason isn't yet fully formed, or it's in the process of forming fully, uh, we wouldn't attribute that to the children as sin at the age of like one or two or three or four. But as you get on towards the quote-unquote age of reason, then it's just a little less clear. It's like, hey, buddy, you know exactly what you're doing right now, and you know that it's disobedient, and yet you're still doing it. It's like the kid might be five, might be six, might be getting on towards seven, and that's where it's, you know, it's just harder to determine or it's harder to establish. And I think, I guess, a lot of his observations are of this like sort. You know, he's talking about like the 
jealousy of babies and stuff like that. You're like, wild, you know, absolutely wild, but true enough. Insofar as these basic desires are present, these higher desires are starting to form and that the child is beginning to experience something of that chaos. Yeah, the, in reflecting on, you know, infancy and boyhood in particular in these chapters, Augustine brings to the fore the the brokenness, the inherent brokenness and woundedness of of humanity because of original sin. You know, so it's not as if it's just you hit what, like the age of reason, six, seven, eight, whatever, you know, whatever there's church law that says when someone is reasonable. But as Father Gregory says, you know, it comes into focus uh, around that time. It's not as if at just that point we develop the capacity or for sin or we're wounded in a way that then allows us to sin. You know, we're, we're all affected by original sin. And this is why baptism, as we'll talk about in coming episodes, is such an important sacrament because it heals us of that. But we can see in St. Augustine's reflection on his childhood, how this brokenness that is left unchecked in ways, you know, that it's, it's not sort of corralled and, and healed and, and directed as it should be, then begins to sort of set the sort of habits of his life that as he gets older, develop into real vices and real personal and particular sins. So we, I think that's important to keep in mind and, and to understand that. Um, one of the things here too, I think we'll, we'll talk about his being in school and his dislike for study, but he talks about learning before he gets there because he learns to talk before he gets to school, which is you know, a good, a good thing. One of the things he does talk about a little bit is his learning to speak, is learning to talk. And that might seem like, yeah, a normal course of growing up, um, learning how to communicate and the importance of speech. And he does so by reflecting on the fact that, you know, he wasn't as a little kid, there weren't things drilled, you know, he didn't do like language drills to learn how to speak, but he began to form words or, and through the association of words and objects from watching other people, he began to know what things were called and and then how to have a conversation in limited ways as kids do to express mostly what he wanted. And then, you know, as this develops, we all know how kids learn to speak. I think it's less there of a lesson on sort of childhood linguistics and that sort of thing. And more of uh, the, the important point here is, is, is on communication itself and the ability to communicate, of course, with people, but also with God that, you know, God is a revealer. He desires uh, to be known by us and to communicate with us and in turn gives us ways by which to communicate too, through prayer, through praise, through thanksgiving, through begging his mercy, but also just speaking with God. So there's, you know, communication is not just a societal reality so that we can get along, but also a way by which we we interact with the divine, with God himself. So if we think of it in those terms, it carries a lot of import and weight. So Let's think too then, well, I, I didn't I didn't even give you an opportunity to say something, Father Gregory. We're talking about speech, like how, how <laughs> whatever of me, you know? Um, yeah. If you have comments on speech, now is your time, or you'll ha- never have an I opportunity. I will limit myself no, you're- <laughs> in, in deference to your desire to cover the material in the appropriate amount of time. I'll just simply say that Augustine notes the importance of memory. So you have to be able to remember syllables and words and their pronunciation and the association with objects if you're going to grow in this capacity for speech and communication. And I think when you zoom out, you realize that that's super important for what he's doing in the work writ large. So he's cultivating a sacred memory and he's helping us, the reader, to kind of enter into that sacred memory because what he's trying to do is trying to kind of, you know, one, 
in his present position, re-engage with his past and determine how God is present, you know, from the depths of his penitence, but also to communicate to us something of that same grace so that we can revisit our own lives, cultivate this sacred memory, and address the God who is there, maybe in moments of sin and vice, maybe in moments of, of virtue and conquest, regardless, present, so that we can cultivate a similar penitence and, and uh, like help to refine that sacred memory and engage more, more fruitfully with our lives. Yeah. The memory bit is important too and even too uh, this is a little tangential but there's this reality that after we sin or have been affected by something that god also desires to heal and and elevate our memory of things too so this all comes into play so these chapters also reflect on saint augustine and his time in school his relationship with his teachers with his parents his dislike for some study and for sort of the discipline of study in general but the um yeah, the discipline thing is is a I don't know. It kind of stands out when you read because he ref- he writes a bit about being beaten, out, you know, the corporal punishment that's administered it, for his disobedience and lack of discipline and all of that, and even that like his elders, his parents, his teachers kind of laugh at the fact that he's beaten. And I think it's worth saying here that I don't think they're laughing, you know, taking like a sort of vicious joy in a child receiving some corporal punishment, but that he's like so afraid like he's so afraid of you know any sort of discipline i mean in in many ways it's a normal thing that a kid doesn't like school and want to sit still and wants to go and do other things so it's not like oh my gosh this is so strange but there he he spent some time on it so i don't know it's it's kind of the beginning of a reflection on his disobedience his transgressions so it builds but yeah thoughts on initial kind of disobedience yeah i think um Yeah, to see this from his teacher's and parents' vantage can be helpful. Okay, so the 21st century, we live in the most probably corporal punishment-averse age of humanity's, you know, short history or long history, depending on how you see it. Um, so it's it's hard for us to sympathize with this, but I think what we can sympathize with is the desire to communicate to a pupil, to a student, or to a child our desire that they be good. So you want to mete out justice and show like bad things merit bad punishments. You also want to deter future instances of bad behavior. You also want to reform the child, help the child to grow, to be better. And you want all of that, you know, to be channeled or to be communicated in whatever it is that you ultimately decide upon for punishment, which is incredibly difficult, right? Uh, Because the child is going to have a memory of you as a punisher, but you want the child to have a memory of you as a doler out of mercy because you want to attract the child to the good. You want to lead the child into the good, but you also know that the child just doesn't have a good memory for good things at the outset and has a better memory for bad things. But in that, in adopting the vantage of parents and educators, you also get a sense for the vantage of God. Like, how is God going to lead us to himself? He could spare us of all difficulty, but then we'll just grow forgetful of him. We just won't be able to refer the good things that we have received to the God who has doled them out. Or he could let us stumble and fall and then patch us up. And then we'll look at him and say like, hey, you could have prevented this. Why didn't you prevent this? Which will cause, you know, perhaps frustration or recrimination, whatever it is. And God's, you know, God is in his heavens. Obviously he's God, so he's not anguished or like stressed in the way that we are, but devising the best ways to draw us into relationship with him, not because he's like a megalomaniac, but because it's our good, you know? And so like just kind of struggling with our, our feelings here on punishment helps us to sympathize with the parents and the educators, but also with the most high God, all of whom are trying, you know, to bring about our good and to draw us into relationship. Yeah. It's important to elicit the good in other people. Okay, so those are those are our chapters for today, chapters seven through ten. Um, you know, reflect too as we end this episode, as you close the book, perhaps on 
on the role that original sin plays in our lives, our sort of attachment to the lower goods over the higher or to not goods. There's a word for that. It's called evils, um, you know, over <laughs> what is good um, and how, you know, habits are formed in our lives. This is what Augustine is reflecting on habits for the good habits for, for the evil or for the bad or for the vicious and how it is that God's mercy kind of reigns through all of it. So we'll leave you there. We'll pick up tomorrow. And uh, in the meantime, know of our prayers. Please pray for us, and we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics.